0: Well, good morning, Anthem Church. We are doing all right? Did you guys watch the big game last week? A few of you did. I'm going to bring Nathan and Anna up here. Um, come on up here. Yeah. Some of you. We're going to be in our, our study of Acts, but uh, just wanted to bring uh, this couple up here. This is Nathan and Anna DePenning. Uh They got baby Hezekiah. He's probably in the nursery somewhere, but... Um, this is a family that we sent out uh, a year ago to go serve overseas. They're working in this small little village of about 9 million people, uh, (laughs) a massive city in Southeast Asia, and they were uh, receiving our summer teams. There's hundreds of thousands of college students, and so we would send short-term teams, a lot of other churches kind of in some circles we run with would send these teams, and we'd meet all these students, and then we'd hand them off to the long-term workers, uh, of which they were a part of that, to do follow-up, to disciple these people. And so they were doing that work, uh, and like I said, a year ago got sent out, and we were touching base regularly, and then we sent Luke and Allie Hedinger over to them. And when we sent Luke and Allie over in the fall um, to work with you guys, it was clear that the the work was good, and you guys were doing all right as a couple, but the team health, by our assessment of that team, was not. And so we intended to send these guys for two years, but as we had that kind of conversation, it started really good, hard conversations with everybody involved, and so for a couple months tried to work on that, and it just became clear in that process that the best thing, as we saw fit, was to to bring these guys home and uh, let them continue their work with internationals here stateside and to work with internationals on campus and do that. And so, again, we prayed and we fasted about that and said, God, what would you have? And it just became clear to not only us, but also that team leader. And so it's a good conversation, but perhaps that's more information than a lot of you care to know. But part of it was just wanting to lead out of transparency. And what you ought to hear is we want to take health very serious and the health of our people. And we didn't want them just to continue the work and then harm their marriage and their family because of it. So we love them. We are proud of them and genuinely excited about how God's going to use them here. But just wanted to acknowledge that. It's like, oh, you guys are back. Like now you kind of know some of that. But again, I do just want to just pray for them as a couple and thank God for them and, uh, and just let you guys know that, that we've got them back. And so officially what they're going to do is is Nathan is going to come on staff. They've raised support to work with internationals. And we said, well, then let's work with internationals. And so just this last weekend already was at an international retreat with some of our students. And uh, the intention is to continue to serve out their time uh, working with internationals and see where God takes them from there. So just want to pray for them before we dive into Acts. And so if you would bow your heads. um, God, we do. We thank you for the faithfulness of this couple that their willingness to take steps, uh, not knowing what the future holds, but who holds it. And so, God, thank you for their faith that led them overseas and now ultimately has led them back here. And we pray that you would bless their family and that you would go before them in this new work and that you would continue what has started with our international ministry. Would you, God, would you just increase it more and more um, through their service? And so we just pray that all in the name of Jesus. Amen. And is it, I don't know if this is too much, they got another little baby on the way too. So can we clap for that too? So congratulations. It's fun, uh, excited to have them back. So we're going to continue in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Acts chapter 2, and this is what we do at Anthem. We take a book of the Bible and we just Teach through it. And so we started in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is resurrected. He's there with his disciples, and he commissions them. He says, hey, you guys, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help you take the message forth from here. And so they're waiting. they're, They're in this room praying, and there's a festival going on, Pentecost. All these people from outside of town are coming on in, and the Holy Spirit just shows up. This is the third member of the Trinity, God, whose preferred pronoun is he, not it, right? This is God, shows up, comes upon them in power, removes this language barrier, and they go out to preach to this massive crowd. And despite all these languages being there, everybody can hear clearly the message being proclaimed, that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, crucified for our sins, buried, and then resurrected from the grave on the third day. And this crowd is hearing that, and we saw earlier in Acts chapter 2, when they heard this, it says they, this crowd of 3,000 plus, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart, learning that Jesus had been crucified, and they cried out. And if you can imagine this, as they're preaching, they're crying out, they're like, what must we do? What do we do? And Peter said, and this is on the screen, and Peter said in verse 38, he said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 41, he goes on to say, so those who received his word were baptized. This is a pattern that we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. That people repent, believe, and get baptized. That baptism follows belief. And what it is, is representing Jesus' death, his burial, his burial. And then resurrection. That's why we take them under the water, signifying the burial, and then out of the water, resurrection. So they're identifying with Jesus in that way. And we see in verse 41 that those who accepted Jesus and were baptized, there were about 3,000 added that day. That's where Matt left off last week, and then we got the rest of Acts chapter 2. But can you imagine like a church ballooning to 3,000? in one day. We're just like creeping up on 300 after three years, and it still feels like a hot mess. 3,000 in a day? You're like, well, who are your connection group leaders? And who is your junior high pastor? Like, what'd you do? Did you? Who did your stage design? Like, there's so much stuff in regards to church. Like, where did you meet? That, that I'm not super detailed, but I start to get overwhelmed thinking about those things. And it's not to say that those Ministries and stage designs aren't, aren't important, but they're just not primary. In today's text, we're going to see what is primary to how the church operates. And so we start our text in verse 42. These are the primary things that the church was about. And they, that is the 3,000, these that profess Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread And the prayers. Primary we see teaching, fellowship, this communion together and prayer. Now, if you grew up uh, perhaps around church stuff, maybe you've seen this little thing. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. Yeah. That's wrong. (laughs) Because this is the church right here, right? The church is the people. Like, that's... That's the church. This just happens to be a building where they met. And so that is not the church. This is the church. And so the church isn't a building. It's God's people gathering together to do these things, okay? And so you can have a building, and you can have a coffee bar, but if you're not teaching the Bible, and you're not praying together, then you don't have a church. The church is God's people coming together. And what does it say in verse 42? It says they devoted themselves to these things, devoted. The word there kind of means persistently stuck, like this really committed. I would want you to think of this. If you've ever, and I know it's hard to think about house flies this time of year because they're all long dead and gone, but in the summertime, uh, I grew up on a farm. There are flies everywhere on a farm. And you would get this rare thing on maybe like a Sunday afternoon. You were like, I'm gonna take a nap. And so you go to the couch and you lay down and all of a sudden, the, the flies, like a fly or something, just, it only takes one. It's like, nah, uh. And they like persistently, like, just wanna stick to you. And you swat and you pull yourself under the covers and it like finds its way in there. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did I only, okay. The persistence of that one fly. And you're trying to sleep and you're like, somebody's gotta die. And so you get up and you just chase it around. Because it's like this persistent devotion to you. He's saying, that's the kind of devotion that they had. This persistence, you can't swat them away. We're going to be about these things, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. And they did that day in and day out. And they were devoted to becoming more like Jesus. And they were devoted in doing it together. And there's going to be a greater explanation in the next five verses, but we're... I think it was Todd that started us out in this book. It's this recognition that when they accepted Jesus, this conversion, it wasn't the finish line. It was the start. That is, in verse 41, they're converted. They come to know Jesus. But in verse 42 is when they get to work. That's when they start to be discipled. And so when we engage and, and surrender our lives to Jesus, that's not the finish line, it's just the start. Jesus didn't commission these disciples to go make converts, because if so, they're done at verse 41. He commissioned them to make disciples. And so he's going to give explanation of what that looks like in the, the verses ahead. In verse 43, it says, What did it, verse 42 is the summary. Verse 43 and on kind of explains. It says in verse 43, in awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Okay, so here in verse 43, don't want to be too quick to associate the awe with the signs and wonders. It's not excluded from, but not exclusive to. Because we read that and we think, oh, it's signs and wonders. Of course people are saying, like, they're in awe. But it's reminiscent of what we saw in verse 37, where it says, now when they heard this, that is the preaching of Peter, they were cut to the heart. And they cried out, what must we do? Signs and wonders can invoke all, but so can spirit-driven preaching. Can people make people go, in awe of who God is. I remember when I first went to a Bible teaching church, it wasn't until I got to college that I went to church growing up every week, but I never heard the Bible taught until I got to college. And perhaps you've had this experience, but I remember Feeling like the sermons were crafted just for me. I mean, have you ever had that when you left a Sunday? You're like, did you just follow me around all week, take a bunch of notes, and just craft this thing to just crush me? Because if that's the case, it was effective. And I just remember, and, and here's the reality it's not the preacher, that's the Holy Spirit. And it leaves you in awe that God would graciously pursue you in that way and speak to you so directly as these disciples paired with God's authoritative word, they just brought it in, and they were in awe. And the disciples' teaching was nothing to mess around with. They spoke with authority. When they spoke, God worked, and people were cut to the heart. And so this awe that's there, got to believe that the devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching is certainly a part of where that awe was coming from. And they not only devoted themselves to that, in verse 42, we said they devoted themselves to fellowship. And we're going to get a better explanation in the weeks ahead, but, but fellowship, if you're taking notes, the word there in the original language would have been koinonia, which meant having things in common, sharing. That's what's meant by fellowship. And he explains it in verses 44 and 45. It says, all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. In common, there is is koinonia. It shares the same root as what we saw in 42 for fellowship. In 45, it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In other words, having fellowship, koinonia, means having things in common. That's what it means. Having fellowship means having things in common. So in the early church, when they had fellowship, what that meant was your donkey is my donkey. My problems, your problems. In the Spanish-speaking churches, mi casa, su casa, right? Like there's just this this sharing that is taking place that the church was doing and still is doing. In fact, reached out to Miss Lena, who's... Uh, a recent widower in our church just had knee surgery. And what that looked like this week, I said, how are we doing? She said, well, my driveway was apparently your driveway because I think somebody scooped it all out for her. Her appointments become our appointments. Her need for meals, like there's a whole meal train that's been set up. The early church having fellowship means they were having things in common. It's the kind of fellowship that can't be limited to a fellowship time in a fellowship hall. (laughs) Does that make sense? That conjures up these images for me. I was like, oh, we had fellowship time. Yeah, that meant uh, donuts, juice, coffee for about 45 minutes after service. No, the fellowship that he's invoking here is so much more than sharing donuts. 45 tells us how much more says this new community was selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Time out. (laughs) If you're reading that, perhaps, like myself, it starts to create a little tension in your heart. Like, that doesn't sound like that was written by a right-wing conservative. (laughs) Let me read it again. They were doing what? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all and any who had need. And you might think, well, but pastor, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And we know that in 1 Timothy 5, that the church is to take care of widows, yes, but only true widows that are 60 that have proven themselves, and that's only if they're family. And so, you know, I don't know if this means exactly what he's saying here. I just want to slow the dismissal party down a little bit. What does our author mean? Because Luke is the author of Acts. He's also the author of the Gospel of Luke. And he has a bit of a theme going here. Again, he's writing to Theophilus, this, this person that's receiving these letters. And he's communicating something. It should be noted that in the Gospel of Luke, it's in that Gospel alone that he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke alone that he tells the parable of the rich fool who builds bigger and bigger barns. Luke records the story of the great banquet and the people too caught up with their possessions to come to this feast. Luke tells the story of the dishonest manager. Luke tells the parable of rich man and Lazarus. More than any other New Testament writer, Luke stresses the dangers of letting our life consist in the things we possess. He stresses this over and over. It's a theme for Luke. John Piper, when studying this out, he wrote this. He said, there is no doubt in my mind that Luke recorded this fellowship because it was praiseworthy. Luke admired the sacrificial love for the sake of the needy. He was giving the well-to-do Theophilus and well-to-do Americans a lesson in the way that Christians who stand in awe of God handle their possessions. This was one of Luke's great passions that Christians Use their possessions for the needs of others and not just their own comforts. Luke makes it clear that the love of money and stuff, if unrepented, leads to an eternity apart from God. In the radical full definition of fellowship that we see in 44 and 45 for the other church, the radical full definition of that found here is the antidote to the love of money and stuff. To have this open hand, any other interpretation aside from the clear reading of the text, I think the burden and the proof would fall on you. And it should be no surprise that Jesus, who loves us, Jesus, who loves us, it shouldn't be shocking that he would call us to love others in the same way. And so it is so foundational, our love for each other. Paul would tell the Galatians this. It's on the screen in, in Galatians 5.14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I remember reading that, no joke, in my blue Bible that I bought from the Christian bookstore in college, because now I was a part of Bible teaching church. I guess that was a part of what you needed to bring on a Sunday. I remember reading that. You can throw that back up on the screen, Nate. And I remember reading it, and I'm like, I think I found a typo. Like, I think he meant to say you should love God with all your heart, strength, soul. Like, shouldn't it shouldn't say love God. But the reality is, is those two commands are paired so closely that you can't love your neighbor without first understanding the love of God. And you can't love God, 1 John 4 would tell us, and say that, oh, I love God, I just don't love my neighbor. Those things go hand in hand. So he's saying, if you can love your neighbor, the only way you can do that is if you love God. And so they're tied together. And 1 John 3 elaborates on this, and again, it's on the screen, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Again, he's saying it's inconsistent. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the church family early on is Is devoted to fellowshipping in these ways, to breaking bread together, to prayer. And here's a sad reality in studying this out that some people in here this morning hear this and they won't be able to obey. And not because you don't want to, but we can't obey these texts if you won't let your needs be made known. Let me clarify. Like, we want to obey these texts, but some of you have hurts, you have needs, you have prayer requests that could be made, but you've made it so hard for God's people to discover those needs and to know they even exist. And I get it that that there's something in us to say, well, I don't want to burden anybody by letting them know that there's this need, and perhaps it's a way to, like, see who really cares. Again, I can come hard at this as someone that struggles with this, but it's like, well, I have this need, and if you can peel back all the layers and and get really down to the root and really, like, get past all my stiff arms to find the need, then I'll know you really care, and then I'll let you. But until you can do that, I'm just not going to share it with you. And I'd say it like this. It's the love of self that would keep us from sharing our possessions, and it's the love of self that would keep us from sharing our needs. It's the same problem. It's the same problem. And so it's, and, and I just want to get to it because I really do believe, at least for a number of us, myself included, it is much easier to serve than to be served. But it's the same root problem that would keep you from doing the both, and it's the love of, of self. And it's, it's a lowly thing to serve, but for many, it'd be a much lowlier thing to allow yourself to be served. That's a hard thing for ultimately proud people to do. And I would just say that that what did we see early on is that these people are cut to the heart by this reality that they've fallen short. And in cut to the heart, they acknowledge their brokenness and they say, Jesus, I need help. Please forgive me. And they cry out to him. what I think we see as they continue is they keep crying out to him and say, I'm still broken. I still don't have it all put together, but my identity is in Jesus not in having it all put together. And so the thing that allowed them to cry out to begin with allows them to keep crying out and keep making those needs known. And so certainly this passage, yes, means that love for others means we should give help. But I also believe it means that we should ask and receive help. And we see that they're devoted to this kind of fellowship. And in this apostle's teaching of fellowship and prayer in verse 46 and 47, he continues. So devoted that it was day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. Now, when he says breaking bread, could be a term for just sharing meals together. Like church people, they got together and they shared meals and likely talked about what they learned and interacted and opened their homes but it's also a reference likely to communion, an ordinance given by Jesus at the Last Supper where they're having a full on supper, right? Celebrating the Passover. And Jesus said, okay, at the beginning, let's do this. This bread, as it's broken, represents my body that will be broken for you. And this cup, this red wine that's in there, represents my blood that was shed. And so he commanded them and said, do this in remembrance of me. Take communion and remember that it's my body broken, my blood shed. And so when he references that they're breaking bread, likely they're sharing communion together. And as I believe they did that, as we celebrate communion often here, as they did that, I imagine it invoked some level of joy, remembering what Jesus had done for them, a thankfulness. And it says, and I love this, and how do we know that that's likely the spirit that's there? It says that they're praising God, in verse 47, and having favor with all people. I believe this group was fun to be around. As those that had had the burden of their sin lifted, there was a level of excitement and joy, and people wanted to be around them, much like the crowds, I believe, wanted to be around Jesus and were pressing in. They're like, man, he's got something. And I just want to say, like, this was a good correction from an older couple within our church. They're like, we love the next generation, but some of y'all are just so serious. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, they just don't know how to, like, laugh and have fun. And it's, you press on it, it's like, you know Jesus didn't stay dead, right? Like, there can be a level of joy. Like, he has risen. And so there is life after life we can operate with a level of, like, freedom. And we walk around like he's still in the grave sometimes. And we just get so serious. And what we see here is the early church, it's a party that people want to be a part of. That there's a joy that is evident. And I just would want that for a church that we could go have lunch together and laugh and have joy. Again, not in love with the stuff, but, but in love with the God who's given these blessings, and to be able to enjoy them. And here's the reality, is our society doesn't live like Acts chapter 2, but our church can. Like, our society doesn't do this. If you look at our society, it is pretty fragmented, disjointed, isolated. You don't even have to go outside of your home anymore to get groceries, and some of the, the moms are like, amen, that's great. I don't, but it's, it's just an observation. Like, you can have groceries delivered to your door. Um, I mean, there's just so much now with online that you can do. An automatic garage door opener, you just push that, drive. You don't even have to park out front and, like, run the risk of senior neighbors anymore. In fact, Matt, who's California, he's like, man, I'm hoping for some snow not because he wants to see snow because it's been a few years, but just for the opportunity to be out shoveling his driveway so he can meet his neighbors. Because aside from events like that, it can be hard to just even interact with our neighbors, and so our our society is pretty fragmented and disjointed. We can really live in isolation. We don't need to interact with each other much anymore. Let me illustrate this. You're not going to get in trouble, but who can tell me, this is really, I'm asking a question, Who can tell me what the weather is going to be like on Tuesday? Go ahead. Who can tell me what the high temperature is going to be on Tuesday? Can anybody? No one? John? you You guys, that was supposed to be an easy one, right? You should be able to pull this out. Some of you are like, we can't have our phones in church. Who got it? It's 40. 40. Some of you are like, that's sad news. But really, like, do you remember what it used to be like to get the weather? Like right now, within seconds, I can have the app pulled up, and I can tell you the 10-day forecast. Man, on the farm, you used to have to, like, sit in front of the TV and watch the news and hear all the other stuff, and then Mark Schneckenberg would get on, and for like, <laughs> that's our guy, Channel 8, okay? Mark would get on and like 8 seconds you had to just soak up the 5 day forecast and then it's gone. And you're like I got to wait two more hours until the news comes on. Like that used to be hard information. Now, and here's what I'm saying is because of Siri, we just don't really have to interact with other people. Modern day conveniences like we don't have to interact with people. We don't we it's just all right there on our phones. And here's what happens, that kind of culture Begins to, like, we can be in places, even like church, we can be around other people, but never kind of be dependent on them, never really have our lives overlap. It's all pretty compartmentalized. And so the best illustration I could come up with, oh, this is open. Our family must have started on this. Okay. Spaghetti, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. It's all in this box together. It doesn't taste very good like that. But it's like, oh, it's all together, but it's pretty parallel, right? It's pretty clean. And say, like, right now, this whole thing would store just fine on a shelf like this if it remains uncooked. And if the goal is clean and organized, keep it just like this in the box, right? And I think much of our interactions with people, even at church, can become compartmentalized. And and we don't truly really overlap. And all of a sudden, like, it's, we have a, a guy or a gal for everything. It's like, oh, my car needs fixed. Like, I got a guy for that. Or finances, like, I got a finance guy. Or even mental health. It's like, I'll go see a counselor for, for that aspect. I'm, I'm not saying it's bad to have a guy or a gal that can help you out with those things. But we never really truly, like, overlap and never, like, really intersect lives. It's just on those kind of areas. Here's the reality. If you could have a contractor come fix your drywall and you'll have better drywall. But if you have Scott Gutwein, who's one of the guys in our church and member, come fix your drywall, your drywall's gonna be fixed and your soul's gonna be shepherded a little bit. I mean, I'm looking at Mike Cox, like you fixed more than enough appliances around town, but probably some marriages in the process. Like when God's people, when we take this stuff out and we cook it up a bit, it just starts interweaving, and all of a sudden, you can more fully begin to, when you're in community, address some things. Because that's the thing, is, is, and I want that, and that's what discipleship, if you want to be a disciple, what I'm saying is, is, and you want to become more like Jesus, part of it is taking this out, cooking it up a bit, and we're going to be able to more fully address and become more like Jesus, because all of a sudden, if Mike, who's the godly guy, comes over and fixes my you know, stove while I'm there, now he's going to start asking me about my parenting. He's going to start asking me about my Bible time. And now all of a sudden, some more things, when we, we don't settle for, for neat and clean, compartmentalized or isolated, but we get around others, that's where we can share our needs, have those needs met, and have genuine fellowship. And so I'm saying, neat and clean, keep it in the box, but community, genuine fellowship, this koinonia means you got to cook that stuff up, throw some meat sauce on it, grate some Parmesan, right? And that's when that actually becomes tasty. It's, it's, the only, it's only being in community that we can truly serve and be served. When we're living clean lives like that, you can't really serve and be served. And now you know why we start to push connection groups so much. That are these groups that meet in homes where we overlap our lives, where we're going to talk about the Bible, yes, but we're going to connect. We specifically don't call them Bible studies, but connection groups because we want to connect. And they can begin to truly, like holistically, help us become more like Jesus. It's hard to truly have that fellowship if you're apart from community. Community becomes a powerful testimony. How powerful? The outside world starts to see this. And we're going to see that that they're seeing this and that it, it finds favor with people. And they're like, man, what they have going on, how they interact, like that person doesn't just fix their tire, but they care about them as an individual. That is just rare. And when they start to see that, it becomes a testimony And what it communicates is, hey, is we as a church, if we get in community and we do what he's prescribing here, as the early church did, that this is the important things. This is what is primary. He says when we do that, when we say, hey, God met our needs, I can meet your needs. When we say, man, God laid down his life for us, I'm going to lay down my life and serve you. When we say, man, God, He's strong, I'm weak. The humility we display when we ask for help is the same humility that will be necessary for the unbeliever to manifest and humbly come to Jesus and say, I'm broken, would you please forgive me? They see that humility in believers who claim, hey, I don't have it all figured out. I still don't have it all figured out, but I'm humbly coming before you. When we do that, it becomes such a powerful example and it says so much so that in verse 47, that the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Every day, more people were trusting Jesus, joining this joy-filled community, and they were being a part of something. An anthem to just bring it full circle, that is what I would want for us, is I would want to have a healthy church. Healthy things grow. Healthy things multiply. And we have this health by being in community together. Because help me understand how you would begin to obey this text if you're not genuinely in community and fellowshipping. How do you genuinely fellowship when you're alone? How do you genuinely share when you're isolated? And so if that is you today, and you're like, I'm kind of like the spaghetti in a box. I'm around people, but I'm not too mixed up. I would say, man, please join community in there. We see that that is what the early church, after being converted, is all about. They're devoted to these things. And what God begins to do in them, as well as through them, is recorded here, I believe for us, as a pattern to follow. And so in terms of what does that mean and how does that apply to you? And I just wanna give you time to think about that. I'm gonna pray and Todd's gonna lead us in our our communion time, but if you would, you can just close your notes and bow your heads. Lord, would you please, God, show us perhaps where we're too proud, either to, to have this genuine fellowship and sharing things in common, Lord, would you reveal now things that are off limits that, that we don't see is, is that to be shared? Uh, and so, God, would you show us our pride there, or would you show us our pride, where we're perhaps too proud to ask for help? And so, God, we just pray that you would, would reveal that. God, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the example of the early church, and do pray that you would grow Anthem and grow the ministries taking place here. We all pray that they would be grown in health with people that genuinely know each other, share their burdens and deeply care. And it's all done in a a spirit of humility. And so God, that is our prayer for our church. We pray that in the name of Jesus, amen.